0: I'm not. I just turned it on, so. <clears throat> now, What is it now? Okay, we'll go with that. <clears throat> My favorite part in that song <clears throat> is when all of a the sudden these afflictions are surpassed by God's glory. That's a difficult thing to happen. When all of our afflictions all of a sudden become surpassed by God's glory. And we realize that those afflictions really aren't that bad in the overall scheme of things. Amen. Romans eight thirty four through 36. <clears throat> who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The Word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, as we look at these remarkable words in this chapter of Romans, we pray, Lord, that you would sear them in our hearts and on our minds, that we would look to them and gain strength in difficult times in our lives, that would, they would forever be a source of confidence for those who are called according to your purpose and those who love you, and for those who aren't and don't, that maybe they will. We have that hope and that request. And Father, as I stand here this morning, I pray that the words I speak be not of my own will, but be according to yours and bring you glory. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We find ourselves in the middle of a very wonderful portion of Scripture Paul has asked several rhetorical questions over the past few weeks, and we're going to get another one here this morning. He has asked, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he asked, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And then he asked, who is to condemn us? And then this morning, we have the last of these questions, at least for now, is, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And as I said last week, a rhetorical question is one that either doesn't have an answer or the answer is obvious. And Paul is writing this, I assume, for the latter. And that the answer should be very obvious to us. But unfortunately, sometimes it's not so easy. But before we get to the actual question, I, I want us to look at something that is implicit within that the love of Christ. And implicit in that is that he loves us, as Crowder just sang about. He loves us. And we have to think about the audience that Paul is addressing here. Who is Paul addressing? Who is the us? That I spoke of. He's writing to those that he referred to in verse 28, right? He's writing to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He is writing to those he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, or saved, and glorified. Those are the ones to whom he is writing. So as we see the context of this question, who is it that Paul's referring to Christ loves? Now at this point in time, hopefully you're giving me a little bit of pushback, right? You are objecting in your minds without objecting by your tongue. The objection should be obvious to everyone. Christ loves everyone! Right, That should be the objection. That should be what's screaming in your mind right now. He loves everyone. John 3.16, for God so loved what? The world. Everyone. We're always taught Jesus loves you. We tell everybody that, right? That's what we're supposed to do. Yet this passage tells us that there are some who will never be separated from the love of Christ. And we know people right now who are separated from the love of Christ. We have known people in the past who died and were separated from the love of Christ. But this passage tells us something different. That this love of Christ that Paul is talking about can never be separated from me or you or anyone who love God and are called according to a purpose, chosen and saved by him, and glorified by him. So what is the love of Christ? Hold that thought, because my plan is to circle back and and pick it up in a few moments. This was last week's passage, verse 34. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, yes, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And I told you that the second part of verse 34, we'll see how this works. The second part of verse 34 actually points up as evidence, boy, that's really bad, actually points back up to evidence as a basis and foundation for the first part of verse 34. No one can condemn us because Christ died for us, Christ was raised, He is at the right hand of God, and He's praying for us. So, All of those point back to the first part. But there's more to those items that I have outlined there than just verse 34. It gives us so much confidence knowing that no one can condemn us, and they can't condemn us because of all those things that Jesus did for us. But I believe this second part that I wrote on also points downward to verse 35 the second part those ideas that he died that he was raised that he is at the right hand of God that he is interceding for us also points downward towards verse 35 as a basis and foundation to what we see in verse 35 when you're right you don't jump from random idea to random idea you may When you write appropriately, it's supposed to be a logical flow of thoughts. That there is a progression of thoughts. That we just don't jump from one thought and jump over here like a squirrel. I do that sometimes. I'm probably guilty of that this morning. My goal is not to do that. That's not what Paul was doing. He tells us in verse 34, who is to condemn us? No one, because Christ is doing and has done all these things for us. He doesn't just jump to another topic in verse 35. He is adding to verse 35 based upon what verse 34 said. So it was those things. I Just went back and it didn't go back. It did. So Christ died for us. He was raised. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is praying for us. And that leads him to the very next question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And I think it's important that we see it that way and we understand it. Because all these things in verse 34 demonstrate Christ's what for us? His love for us. This is the outworking of the love that Jesus had for us, has for us. And when I said about this love idea... Who's he doing these things for? Us. 28. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's who he's doing these things for. And that's the love that we're talking about in verse 35. He's not doing those things for everyone. He's not praying for everyone, folks. That's not what he does. John 17, 20 christ's high priestly prayer he's praying to the father he says i do not ask for these only he's praying about the disciples i don't i'm not just asking for them but i'm asking for all the believers all those who believe in me through their word that's the focus of his prayer he did it here on earth he's doing it in heaven by the father's right hand and it's just focused on believers. And that's the confidence we looked at last week that nobody's to condemn us. And that is the outworking we see this week in his love. It's the justification of his love. So circling back to my original question, does Jesus love people differently? The answer is obvious. should be now, right? right. Believers have a special place with jesus that unbelievers don't have believers are getting benefits that unbelievers aren't believers are getting the benefit of jesus dying for us that him being raised for us that him ascending into a heaven into the heavens uh, sitting at the right hand of god and praying for us that is the outworking of the love that he has for each one that loves him and it's just for us by god's grace Not because we're any better than anybody else, but just by God's grace, believers hold a very special place with God. While this may seem difficult for you to wrap your head around, and it can be put offish at times, jump to the Old Testament, did God love a group of people more than he loved others? You got no problem saying that Israel was God chosen people, do you? The Chaldeans, we got no problem with that. Everybody in here would raise their hand. Yeah, he loved the Jews more than anybody, anybody else. But yet, whenever the church gets thrown in there, we tend to push back. I will tell you this morning that the church has a very special place in God's heart. More than anything else. That's who he's coming back for, folks. He's not coming back for the nation of Israel. He's coming back for the church. He loves the church unlike anything else. And we are individual members of that body, of that church. So yes, there is a very different type of love that God has for a believer than an unbeliever. So as we Take this question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And all those things that he's doing for us demonstrates his love for us. The first words says, who? Well, it kind of seems a little obtuse because it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And yet, then we get a bunch of events or things. You would think in keeping consistent, you'd get a bunch of people. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ is my congressman or the king or whoever. That's not what has actually happened here. I I think it would be better translated, and it is the same word in the Greek. It's tis. It can be translated who or what. And I think there are some translations that translate that what shall separate us from the love of Christ. And I believe that's probably a better translation because it gives us a series of events and not a group of people. But before we get to those events, let's again focus on the love of Christ. What exactly is that? I mean, we try to define love in our lives to hopefully gain an understanding of what Christ's love is. We've seen that, yes, he came to earth. He left heaven. He died, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, is at the right hand of God and is praying for us. That demonstrates his love for us. Those things demonstrate his love for us. But that doesn't really tell us what the love of Christ is or what the end goal of all this is. Love is often identified by actions or feelings. Is it not? I mean, that's just kind of the reality of it. But Doing things for people and telling people that you love them, yeah, it's, it's a demonstration, but it's not the end all. The most important element of love is time. I'll repeat that. The most important element of love is time. If I gave Stephanie every gift that could be imagined and told her every day, that I loved her, and never spent any time, it would be useless. It is the time, the togetherness, the closeness, the sharing of life, the sharing of things, the sharing of each other that defines love. That is the most precious entity with respect to love that you can imagine. And I will tell you that it's no different with our relationship with Jesus. His love for us is built around a desire to share time with us. Matter of fact, his whole plan, God's whole plan is designed around the ability to share eternity with us. That demonstrates his love for us. The fact that he's at the right hand of Father praying for us is something that he's doing for us, but it is the time that we spend with him and will spend with him in eternity that truly defines that love. If you've got any relationship, love relationship in this world, you know what I'm talking about. Time is the most important commodity. You show me. Two people that claim that they love each other and yet spend no time together, I will show you a love that is diminishing and vanishing. It's just the reality of it. That's how we are as human beings. Eternity with Christ is the perfect completion of his love for us. I'll repeat that: Eternity with Christ is the perfect completion of his love. For us, we know when relationships go sour, and we know that things can stand in the way of relationships. Things can cause relationships to be destroyed. Paul knew that. And Paul's going to give us a lot of things here that can destroy relationships, a lot of events that can destroy relationships. But Paul wanted us to be very confident that even though these things can be responsible for destroying every earthly relationship that we know of, they will never destroy our relationship with Jesus. It's the point that he's wanting to make through that. They do not have that power or ability. They can never destroy our relationship with Christ. The first thing he mentions is Tribulation Tribulation The Greek word is thalipsis. It also means affliction. Affliction, Ergo the song we sung this morning, when all these afflictions are eclipsed by glory. Affliction brings to mind to me the church in Macedonia in Second Corinthians. And Paul writes of that church. If you remember, we went through Paul's missionary work when he was going around. This was when he was collecting money to take back to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And he rolls through Macedonia, and he makes his statements about that wonderful church. For in a severe test of affliction, for during a tribulation time, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So, in a test of their affliction, same word as tribulation that's being used here in Romans 8, in the test of your affliction, in their affliction, what did they demonstrate? They demonstrated joy. The world would say, what a stupid bunch of people. They were broke. They had no money. They were destitute. They were at the ends and dregs of this earth. And they had joy. And what did the joy cause them to do? It caused them to give more money, which was going to end up, they were going to be more poor, more destitute, more broke. But they still did it. They still did it. Why? Because they knew that those afflictions was never going to be able to separate them from the love of Christ Jesus. Couldn't do it. That no matter how much they were afflicted and folks' afflictions, suffering can affect relationships with others. It can destroy relationships with others. But Paul's saying it can never destroy our relationship with Christ Jesus. And the church at Macedonia knew that. And they gave because that, because of that. That affliction was ignored and they overflowed in wealth of generosity and gave more than what they had the ability to give. When we can find that joy in the midst of affliction, you can confirm in your heart that Christ Jesus is your treasure. When you can find that joy in the midst of affliction, you can confirm or it confirms in your heart that Jesus is your treasure more than anything else. Distress. Distress is extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. Anxiety is a horrible affliction. It's a terrible disease, and it can be debilitating. And it can destroy relationships of all different sorts. Those you once loved, so, and treasured, it can destroy that relationship. It can be a horrible thing and wreak havoc in our lives. But Paul tells us that no matter how bad the distress or anxiety may be in our lives, that can never separate us from the love of Christ. And I want you to remember that these events can also lead to sin, it can also lead to different things in our lives. Sometimes when we're suffering through tribulation, we commit sin. Sometimes when we're suffering through anxiety, we sin. Or if we're persecuted or starving to death or naked or in danger or in a sword fight. But just know that we don't keep ourselves. And so that's sort of a an extra on this. These afflictions, nor what they result in, can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. It's demonstrated by Him praying for us. That in the end means we will be saved. Persecution. Persecution. Now, I say persecution, and I want to rewind it and say unjustified persecution. Because some people are persecuted for just being mean people, right? That's kind of justified, persecution. And they walk around and say, I don't know why everybody persecutes me all the time. It's because you're mean. You're just hateful. So that doesn't count. And we've all got those people in our minds, right? Everybody just persecutes me and talks to me awful. I'm talking about unjustified persecution for a belief in Christ. Fortunately, for many years, Christians have gotten to enjoy freedom from persecution in this country. It's not always been the case throughout the history of the world, and I will warn you that 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 will not always be the case going forward. We're in a sort of an armistice, but it's coming, and it will come back with a vengeance. But regardless of how much we are persecuted Paul tells us we cannot be separated from the love of Christ Jesus which is eternal life because that's the goal to spend forever with us together he will be our God and we will be his children and have eternity to share with each other that defines his love famine famine fortunately There's not many of us in this room that know what it's like to suffer from that. I know that many went through the Great Depression. That was probably as close as anyone can come to actual famine. The idea of being starved to literally death is foreign to my mind and very difficult to understand. My stomach starts growling. I'm heading for the fridge. I say that in jest, but it is serious because there are people around the world that that suffer to this day. But if you want something that will separate you from other people, starvation will. The entirety of your brain is focused upon finding the next amount of food, whatever it may be, so that you can have the energy to stand up. No one else around you matters at that point in time. You're worried about being able to sustain your life, and that's what a lot of these are. That love relationship you had with whoever it is is way down on the list of things when all you're trying to do is stay alive. But it's not with God. And that's what Paul's telling us. It doesn't matter how much damage these things can do to us individually with our relationships with each other because they can't have that effect on Christ's love for us. Famine can never separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, which is eternal life. Nakedness. We don't really understand that one either. We can usually find some sort of clothing to cover us. But just try to go there with me in your mind to think how awful that must really be to be exposed to all the elements. The freezing cold, the blazing sun. And you spend so much of your time just trying to find some sort of protection. It's going to make you not... Focus on those that are around you, but you're in self-preservation mode. Those love relationships, you don't care about them. You're just wanting to be able to survive. Paul says not even nakedness can separate us from the love of Christ, which is eternal life. Danger? Danger. There are many different levels of danger. Real danger, I believe, is whenever your life or the taking thereof may be imminent. I think of those of you that have served our armed forces and have seen combat and been under fire. When you're worried about self-preservation, That love relationship you may have with whoever it is isn't on your mind. I mean, you're just worried that you're going to make it to the next point to be able to grab the next heartbeat and the next heartbeat after that and the next heartbeat after that because survival is all that's on your mind. Any relationships you have at that time really don't exist. You're just worried about staying alive. Love relationships at that time are a delicacy that you don't have the pleasure of enjoying. And yet, Paul tells us that danger, no matter how bad it is, can never separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, which is eternal life. And finally, the sword. At first glance, you may think that that and danger is sort of together. I don't think that they are. I think that Paul's going a little bit further with the sword. The sword can definitely bring danger, but it can also bring death. Not even death. When all the relationships here on this earth are gone, that cannot separate us from the love of Christ Jesus which is eternal life. And he tells us all these things so that we know, folks, for those of us who love Christ, who are called according to his purpose, there is nothing that we can fathom or imagine in our mind that can steal our eternity. That's why he's telling us that. All of these things steal our relationships on earth and can steal and have stolen our relationships on earth. They cannot steal our relationship with Christ Jesus. Can't happen. I know, by the way, he's going to give us some very encouraging words here in verse 36. I say that rather sarcastically. Because this is what he's telling us to expect. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's a quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. He's telling us that God's not going to protect you from all these things. Don't think you're above that. Don't think Jesus loves me and I'm not going to get cancer. Don't think, Jesus loves me and I'm not going to be persecuted. Don't think, Jesus loves me and whatever, you fill in the blank. Because that's not what the Word of God says. We are going to be killed all the day long. Suffering is imminent. Suffering Is part of our lives, we are going to be subjected to tribulation. We are going to be subjected to distress, to persecution, to famine, to nakedness, to danger, to the sword. Those are all going to fit us. But there's good news. No matter how bad they are, none of them can separate us from the love of Christ, which is eternal life. So as I close this morning, have confidence in that. See the beauty in that. Over the past year and a half or so, there's been a whole lot of suffering going on. There's been a whole lot of suffering in this church by a lot of folks here. And I know that relationships have come and gone in your life, whatever the case may be. But know that Nothing, nothing, nothing that was listed or nothing that we can dream up has the power to separate us from Christ Jesus and to steal our eternity with him. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the power of your love. Father, our love here on earth can be very fickle, and it can be changed and destroyed so easily by just the things that we spoke of this morning. Father, we thank you for your spirit giving these words to Paul that we can be confident that all of those events that we talked about and any event that we can imagine cannot separate us from your love, that special love, that love that is demonstrated by your praying for us, that will culminate in us spending eternity with you, spending time with you. We ask, Father, that you give us that confidence. And, Father, you give us the truth that we need to spend as much time here as we possibly can that we know you love us and that you want time with us now and in eternity. Help us to devote ourselves to you with time. We give you all praise and all glory. In Christ's precious name, amen. All rise.